tonight we come to the death of Jesus Christ in Luke chapter 23. So let me ask you to turn there in your Bibles, Luke chapter 23. Jesus stood on trial and was condemned as guilty, but clearly he was innocent. And that's because people had already made up their minds about who they thought he was. They didn't want to accept him as Savior They didn't want to accept God as their father because that would mean that they would have to submit to God as their father and submit to Jesus as their master. People take the truth that they know about God and they suppress it so that they can continue in their sin. Jesus was clearly the Messiah. It was obvious to all and yet they suppressed that truth and would not accept Him as the Messiah because they were deceived. Their hearts were hardened. Jesus had already stood trial before an unreasonable Sanhedrin and a reasonable but cowardly governor, Pilate, and the judgment had been made. He's guilty, and his sentence has been laid down. It is death by crucifixion. So let's read our text tonight. I'll read it. You follow along, beginning in verse 33. When they, Jesus and the two criminals, came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. And the people stood by looking on. And even the rulers were sneering at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if this is the Christ of God, his chosen one. Soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him, offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Now there is also an inscription above him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered and rebuking him said, Do you not even fear God? since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And he, Jesus, said to him, Truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. It is now about the sixth hour, and darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour, because the sun was obscured and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had happened, he began praising God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds who came together for this spectacle, when they observed what had happened, began to return, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had accompanied him from Galilee were standing at a distance seeing these things. Having been despised and rejected, Jesus goes to the cross as an innocent man. Jesus had been on trial by the Sanhedrin, by Pilate, and Herod. They've all ruled him to be guilty, but Jesus 
is on trial now effectively before his accusers. He's on trial before a watching world and Luke shows us in this passage how Jesus responds, how they, the watching world, responds and how God responds to His crucifixion. So, the various responses to the crucifixion of Christ. And all of it points to the fact that Jesus died an innocent death. How does Jesus respond to His own crucifixion? We see it in verses 33 and 34. He forgives His adversaries. In verse 34 it says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Having been condemned as a guilty criminal, Jesus is led to a place called the skull, or in Greek, cranium. You hear the word the cranium, from which we get cranium. Uh, cranion, Latin, Calvary. We sing about Calvary, talk about Calvary all the time, Calvary's cross and so on. There's no word Calvary in the Bible at all. Okay, We, we call it that because it's the Latin word for this place. The Aramaic name for this place is Golgotha. And this is probably how the people would have referred to it. Here in the text we have it translated as the skull. Apparently this place was a kind of a hill that was in the shape of a skull or maybe that people, so many people had died there. And Jesus is placed, notice verse 33, between two criminals. He's treated as if He were guilty like the, the criminals. It says in the second part of verse 33, there they crucified Him and the criminals, one on the right, one on the left. So when you look at the three individuals, it's, it looks like they're all guilty. You would think that if you have these two criminals on the outside, then the middle one certainly must be. And yet, Jesus responds to His wrongful treatment by forgiving His adversaries. Now, there is a note here in the margin of your Bible under verse 34. Perhaps you noticed that as you were reading it. It says some early manuscripts do not contain the first part of this verse. Now, we've had other notes in the margin of our Bible that have said things like the earliest manuscripts do not contain this verse or most early manuscripts do not contain this verse. But notice the language of this marginal note. It says some early manuscripts. So that tells us that actually the earliest and best manuscripts do contain this verse and that's why we take it to be part of the original Scriptures. We rely on the earliest and the oldest, the, the, um, the ones that are closest to the original. And so this, while this note says there are some who didn't have that in it, we take this to be part of Scripture. Why would Jesus not condemn His adversaries? Why would He not use this opportunity to, to rebuke those who were crucifying Him? Saying, you fools! I am the Son of God, your Messiah. I've come to save the lost. And God will surely bring judgment on you for putting Me to death. Why not use this as an opportunity of condemnation? And the reason is because that's not what Jesus came to do. Do you realize that He could have done the same to us? He could have said, you guilty sinner, you put me to death. You were partially responsible for my death. But instead of condemning them in this situation, there will be a time for that. Time for condemnation and judgment. But here, in this situation, He prays for His adversaries and He offers forgiveness. 
to them. In fact, he, he pays for their forgiveness on the cross. There is certainly a time for condemnation and judgment. But here, Jesus is practicing what He preached. In Luke chapter 6, verse 35, He said to the disciples, Love your enemies and do good to them, for God Himself is kind and ungrateful to evil men. Isn't that the case? Isn't it? Aren't you thankful that God is not kind only to good people? Because we are numbered. We were at one time numbered among the evil. Right? God would not love anyone if He were only kind to those who were like Him. Because there is no one like God. There is no one who's perfect. There is no one who's without sin. And that's the way our God is. He is kind and ungrateful to evil men. And that's the way Jesus is here, even at His lowest point on this earth. He says, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Now, this does not relieve them of the responsibility and say, well, you know, you don't, since you don't know, you know, it's okay. But he recognizes they don't really know who he is. They don't really understand that he is the Son of God in human flesh. Because if they did, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2 8, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But they did. And so Jesus says, they don't know who I am. So please forgive them, Father. Now those who do not end up repenting following this prayer will be responsible for their sin. They will be responsible for putting Jesus on the cross. How terrible it will be for them in the day of judgment. So Jesus forgives His adversaries. Notice the soldiers in the second part of verse 34 capitalize on His adversity. The soldiers capitalize on His adversity. It says they cast lots, dividing up His garments among themselves. The soldiers use the mistreatment of Jesus as an opportunity to take advantage of the situation for themselves. Kind of like a, a memento, a, a memorial, a, a, a piece of memorabilia, for example, like a, a jersey from a ball game or a, you know, some kind of a piece of armor from a battle. This is some clothes from one who called himself the king. Now, we have some of those clothes. We've kind of had them, uh, we kind of rolled the dice to see who would get them. Soldiers capitalize on his adversity. Thirdly, the crowd reassesses him. Verses, verse 35. And the people stood by looking on. Now this is the same crowd, I think, that had already been at the trial of Jesus. We'll talk about that later. The people who were mocking him and demanding that he be crucified in verse 21 here now are watching and hoping they're going to get some kind of a entertainment factor out of watching him die. And now they don't seem to be too excited about it anymore. They just kind of look on. What, what's going on here? What is this, all this about? So I think they're reassessing the situation. And we'll talk about that more when we get to the end of the text. Second part of verse 35, we see, fourthly, his accusers, his accusers scoff at him. His accusers scoff at him. First, the Sanhedrin says, second part of verse 35, even the rulers were sneering at him, saying, he saved others. Let him save himself. So this is kind of a, a key point that Luke is making. It's, it's kind of a point of irony, isn't it? He can save others, but he can't save himself. The, the soldiers say something very similar at the end of verse 37. If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And the, the, one of the criminals does the same. Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. So there's a kind of a repeating refrain 
of these people who rejected Jesus for who He was. Listen, you can't save yourself. And the irony is, is that He could save Himself, but He had to die in order to save us. You're trying to save others. You can't even save yourself. They're mocking Him. And while they're mocking Him, He's praying for their forgiveness. Notice that they don't say this to Jesus. They don't say, hey, you save yourself. In the case of the rulers, in verse 35, they say to one another. Right? See that uh, third person pronoun, personal pronoun? He saved others. Let him save. It's not, uh, it's not second person. You saved others. Why don't you save yourself? They're, they're talking to each other. They can't even say it to him directly. And effectively, they're saying, you know, this cannot be the Messiah. The Messiah would never hang on the cross and be cursed. Because remember, everyone who hangs on a tree is cursed. I mean, no Messiah would do that. But what they don't realize is that Jesus can save Himself, but He chooses not to in order to suffer for us who would be saved through His death. The second category of people who who accuse Him, scoffers we could say, are the soldiers. Verses 36 and 37. The soldiers mocked Him, offering Him sour wine. This is the cheap wine that common people would drink. and they I think they kind of do this in mockery. Can, uh, can we give you some of this really great wine to quench your thirst? It's really the cheap vinegar-filled wine. And like the Sanhedrin, they're also not convinced of Jesus' power in verse 37. If you are the King of the Jews, then save yourself. Come down from the cross. Fifthly, we see fifth response to the crucifixion of Christ is Pilate, verse 38. Pilate humors him. Pilate humors him. Verse 38, there's this inscription above him, and we know from other Gospels that it was Pilate who demanded that this be here. This is the King of the Jews wrote it in several languages so that no matter who you were, you would see that inscription, large in block letters, this is the King of the Jews. And I think this is part, in part, a mockery of the Sanhedrin. Here you go, Sanhedrin. Here's your king that you were talking about. Look at what you're doing to your own king. And I think it's partly in, in order to humor Jesus. Here's your title that you say you are. Remember when I asked you, who, you, who are you? Are you the King of the Jews? And you said... It is as you say. Well, here's your title, Jesus. It's above your head. You say you're the King of the Jews, so here you have it. Sixth group is found in verses 39 through 43, and that's the criminals. The criminals appraise him. One accuses him, scoffs at him, and the other believes in him. The criminals appraise him, verses 39 to 43. According to Mark's Gospel, both of these criminals began by mocking him. They're kind of following along with the crowd. Yeah, who is this guy? I mean, how, why isn't he saving himself? He's got so much power. If he is this Messiah, why can't he save himself? So they both start out mocking him. But here, Luke records that the one continues to do it. That the one of the criminals, verse 39, who was hanging there, was continuing to hurl abuse, after they both were apparently, and saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. So why don't you just get us all down from here? Do your magic. Get us down from this cross. But the other criminal has a change of heart in verses 40 and 41. And after mocking him, 
evaluates the situation and recognizes that Jesus is innocent. One of the key things, themes that Luke has been tracing throughout this trial and crucifixion. Jesus is innocent. Notice in the text where we see this from the second criminal. Verse 40, But the other answered and rebuking him said, Do you not even fear God since you're under the same sentence of condemnation? Saying this to the other criminal. And we indeed are, are suffering justly for we're receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Simply another way of saying this man is innocent. So what, remember, this is what Pilate kept saying to the crowd and to the Sanhedrin. He's done nothing wrong. I, I'm going to release him. Herod has affirmed it. I've affirmed it. So I'm just going to release him. I'm going to have him scourged and then released. And now this kind of theme continues. The criminal says, how can you talk to him like that? We're responsible for our sin. We are deserving of our death. But don't you see what this man is doing? He's, he's praying for his mockers. He's asking for forgiveness for them. This man's done nothing wrong. This is not simply academic knowledge or head knowledge, we could say. This criminal actually believes that Jesus is the Messiah and that he has the power to save. Notice verse 42. And he was also saying, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. It sounds to me like this criminal is expecting Jesus someday off in the distant future when the kingdom finally comes, don't forget about me. They raise me up from the dead and allow me to be a part of that kingdom. What does Jesus, how does Jesus respond in verse 43? It's going to be today. That reward that you're asking for, you're going to experience a portion of that today. You're going to be with me in paradise. Now, that doesn't mean that the kingdom was starting today. It means that he was going to experience the presence of God forevermore. Jesus promises him, yes, you can have that kingdom, but I'll also give you a near reward, one that's much nearer than, than when the kingdom comes. The criminals appraise him. Number seven, the Father judges him. How does God respond to the crucifixion? How does God respond to the crucifixion? The Father judges him. We've seen a number of people make a number of statements about Jesus, but now God speaks effectively in verses 44 and 45. And He speaks through the cosmological events that are going on. Now, what Luke records here is not a mistaken historical account. Notice what happens and then I'll, I'll explain it. Verse 44, it was now about the sixth hour and darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour because the sun was obscured. So all these people making all these different evaluations about what's happening, who's right, who's wrong. They're appraising the situation and now God speaks through the sky and He turns it dark. This is not a mistaken historical account as if you know, it's kind of late in the day. People kind of lost track of time. And it really was nighttime. And, and so that's why it became dark so quickly. Notice verse 44. It was now about the sixth hour. Again, they don't have watches. They don't, they're not holding you know, sundial little bands on their wrists or anything. Uh, they, they do everything that they do based on the sun. They can tell where, where they are. And that's why Luke says about the sixth hour based on what he could tell. Is from about the sixth hour to about the ninth hour. In other words, the sun was 
at the top of the sky. It was at its brightest. That's the time. Between 12 and 3 p.m. is the time. That's, that's our time, the 6th and the ninth hour. 12 and 3 p.m., this is when the sun is at the brightest. And this is when the, God, when, when the sky goes dark. This is when God shuts off the light, effectively. So this is not a mistaken historical account. Well, he didn't really know what time of day it was. Luke records it very carefully. He makes sure he finds out from various people what was going on. We also know that this is not a solar eclipse. Do you know what a solar eclipse is? It's when the moon passes in front of the sun to block it, to obscure it. And we might think that because of verse 45. Because the sun was obscured. So it became dark because, you know, the moon went in front of it. It was obscured because of the moon. But this also cannot be what happened because the solar eclipse can only happen, if you think about it carefully, can only happen during a new moon, right? When the, when the, when the moon has kind of got its back to the sun, we're not going to get any reflection off the moon. That's the only time that a solar eclipse can happen. It has to line up just perfectly. But, but do you know, during the time of Passover, every single Passover that's ever been uh, recorded, they, they always start their months based on the full moon. And Passover was on that full moon. So this was during a full moon. could not be a solar eclipse. God somehow makes everything dark. And so the only explanation is not a scientific explanation, is it? It's a supernatural explanation. That is, that this is God speaking from the heavens. And what does darkness mean? Well, remember darkness in the Old Testament. The ninth plague of Egypt in Exodus 10, 21-23 was judgment upon the land. It was one of God's judgments saying, listen, I'm in control of your son, your God, Ra, I'm in control of him. Okay, I, I control all these things. So I can turn it dark whenever I please. He kept the light in the Israel's camp. Just, just amazing to think about. We also see darkness in the Old Testament as a sign of judgment by the Old Testament prophets. Isaiah 9 2 says, The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Jesus used darkness to refer to judgment. In the parable of the talents in Matthew 25.30, he says, Throw that slave into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Talking about the eternal hell. It's a sign of God's judgment. No light. No light of His glory. No light from the sky. And so what's happening while Jesus there is hanging on that cross? Is that while the sun should have been at its brightest, God comes down in a spectacular, supernatural way to pour out His judgment upon His Son because He was taking upon Himself during those three hours the sin of you and me. It was during those three hours that Jesus bore your wrath. He bore the wrath that you and I deserved. And it's clear that this darkness is supernatural when we look at the next event that takes place around the time of His death. Look at the end of verse 45. First, the beginning, because the sun was obscured. And, and also, here's what also happened. The veil of the temple was torn in two. So, no one would say that this is just you know, something that, that we can explain scientifically. Now, it may have to do with, some, with the earthquake that was going on at the time. But whatever the case, the veil 
of the temple, this nine-inch thick curtain that hung in the temple between the holy place and the most holy place, was torn in two. We have two supernatural events taking place. Jesus is substituting Himself for us. Remember last week we saw that the guilty Barabbas was set free while the innocent Jesus was put to death. Here we see that picture of substitution once again. Jesus is judged by God while we are welcomed by God. Well, how do we know that we're welcomed by God? That's the point of the temple uh, curtain being torn, right? The veil. Saying, I'm opening up the door. This is amazing if you think about Old Testament history. How many people were actually able to go into the most holy place? I mean, there were only a handful. I think, uh, maybe a handful is not the way to put it, but I think there were only 70 to 80 high priests from the time of Aaron all the way until the time of Jesus. Only 70 or 80. So it was only the high priest, remember, that could go into the most holy place. So in all of Jewish history, that's all you have out of tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of Jews, in those 1,500 years, only 70 or 80 were able to enter the most holy place. Do you remember how big of a deal it was just to enter the temple itself? Remember Luke chapter 1? A couple weeks ago? More like a year ago. But Luke chapter 1, Zacharias. Remember he he, he had, uh, they cast lots to see who could go into the temple and perform the the temple duties, the, the services of the temple, this was a huge deal for him. He was able to perform the priestly duties because many of those priests would only get to do it once in a lifetime, if that. Many didn't even get to do it at all. And Zacharias had this time when he was able to see this vision of the angel. But even Zacharias could not enter the most holy place. Only the high priest could. And he could only do it once per year and he could not come empty handed all year round that inner temple room was guarded by this veil that had two cherubim embroidered into the cloth and that room sat empty full of cobwebs I'm sure and lots of dust and dirt all over the place because no one could enter into that room but now, with the, with the coming of Jesus' death, God tears that veil open. He, he opens up the door for us. So we have this picture of substitution. We should have been judged for entering into the presence of God. And yet, Christ is judged in our place on the cross through the death. And we're able to be welcomed into the presence of God. God's saying, here you, here you go. Come on in. You're welcome. Obviously, we need to come according to the means that He's provided through Jesus Christ. So while Jesus was being judged, God at the same time was opening up the most holy place so that all could enter, all who come through Jesus Christ. Luke also wants to make it clear that Jesus literally died. We don't want to to buy into the lie that Jesus was just comatose or something. That he wasn't fully dead and kind of, he went to the tomb and he was resuscitated. Um, no, he was fully dead and he had to be resurrected. And that, that's, that, I think, is clear when we look at verse 46. 
And Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last, his last breath, that is. This was an unusually short crucifixion. Normally, a crucifixion would last for two to three days, which is why the soldiers would come by and break the legs of the criminals so that they would have to labor hard to breathe. They wouldn't be able to push themselves up to get a breath. Jesus' body was placed on the cross, according to, excuse me, according to Mark 15, at 9 a.m. And according to Luke's gospel, he dies around 3 p.m., only six hours instead of two or three days. Various causes of death that took place because of crucifixion. Historical records show that that the birds would feast on these these bodies with all these open wounds, even while still alive sometimes. Jesus literally died. He breathed His last breath. Death, as you know, there's three kinds of death. Physical death in the Bible and spiritual death and eternal death. Here, this is talking about physical death, which is a separation of of the soul from the body. Or we could say the separation of our material body and our immaterial person. That's what's happening here. When you go to the funeral home for the death of your believing father and your child or nephew walks up to you and says, where's my grandpa? Your response should not be, that's not grandpa. Your response should not be, he's not here. Because his body actually was part of who he was. Whether believer or unbeliever, his body is a part of who he is. Your body is a part of who you are. The reality is is that we are individual persons made up of both body and spirit, both material and immaterial. And so yes, there is a sense in which grandpa is gone, but there's also a sense in which grandpa's here. We see him, we can touch him. And that's why death is so unnerving. It's, it's, there's a sense of, of incompleteness that we're not quite complete. We, we don't... Uh, here's how... Um, I don't have it here, but um, Paul says, I think, in 2 Corinthians 5, that we long to be clothed with our eternal bodies. That we long to be clothed with our eternal bodies. That is, there is some sort of sense of excuse me, of incompleteness when we die. Our spirit being needs to be restored. And that is why, Christians, the resurrection is so critical to us as body-dwelling people. That's why the resurrection is so critical. Because without our body, we would be unclothed. We are incomplete. Now, where did the Spirit of Jesus go? If the, the, the physical death that He experienced is a separation of His body <coughs> from His Spirit, or His material from His immaterial, where did the Spirit of Jesus go? Look at verse 43. Remember the criminal asked Him to remember Him in verse 42, and then Jesus says, Truly I say to you, today you shall be with Me in paradise. Now we have to think about this for a second because Jesus is saying, Today I'm going to be in paradise, but where's his body? Well he says that. I mean, while his while his spirit let's say is in paradise, where's his body? Still on the earth, right? It's on the cross. Eventually Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus take it to a tomb. 
So for three days, or for parts of three days, he's in a tomb. His body is there, but his spirit goes immediately to paradise to be with God. And then after that, he's reunited with his body. So the soldiers, uh, Jesus forgives his adversaries. The soldiers capitalize on his adversity. The crowds reassess him. His accusers scoff at him. Pilate humors him. The criminals appraise him. The Father judges him. Now verse 47, number 8. The centurion excuses him. The centurion accuses him. Verse 47. Now when the centurion saw what had happened, he began praising God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. Centurion, as his name suggests, was a man in charge of a hundred soldiers. In this case, he would have been given responsibility by Pilate to oversee these three crucifixions to make sure that these men actually died. And doubtless this man, because this was the mode of, of death for the Romans. This is the one they loved to do the most. They studied all sorts of forms of execution. This is their favorite because it caused the most pain and the most humiliation. And so doubtless this centurion had overseen hundreds if not thousands of crucifixions before, but never had he seen a man crucified like this. Never had he seen a man crucified who was clearly innocent. And that's what he says here in verse 47. Certainly. He doesn't say this man might be innocent. We might have, we might have convicted a wrong, uh, you know, we might have wrongly convicted him. No, he says, certainly. I know for a fact this man was innocent. And this is part again of Luke's point that he's been making. Jesus was innocent in his death. This man had seen so many things that Jesus had done from the time of his uh, condemnation to the time of his death. And he says, this man had to be innocent. We'll look at that here at the, when we come to the end. Finally, number nine, the crowd reconsiders him. So, we saw the crowd reassess him in verse 35, but now they, they reconsider him really something very similar in verses 48 and 49. All the crowds who came together for this spectacle it kind of gives you the impression that this is for entertainment purposes. It's a spectacle. They came together, and when they observed what had happened, they began to return, beating their breasts. When they saw what the centurion saw, they too, I think, recognized that Jesus was innocent. This beating of the breast was the sign of what? What does that mean in the ancient Near East when someone beats their breast? It's a sign of mourning and grief, grief, perhaps even repentance. They had probably come to see this spectacle and to be confirmed in their choice that yes, the Sanhedrin was right and we should have put him to death because he would have just gotten out of control. But instead of going away relieved and happy and justified in their shouts to crucify him after seeing what had happened, they went away sad, beating their breast, grieved at what they had seen. And if you thought that the crowd who put put him there was sorrowful, consider his closest family and friends in verse 49. And all his acquaintances and the women who accompanied him from Galilee were standing at a distance seeing these things. They couldn't come close. They couldn't bear to watch it or maybe they were afraid of what might happen to them. But they did watch from a distance and they were terrified. Here, in Luke 23... Luke is making this point that Jesus was innocent when we, He went to death for us. 
That's exactly the kind of sacrifice that we needed. And even the opponents of Jesus acknowledge His deity, although many of them do it not knowingly. That is, they speak better than they know. Notice the names of Jesus that are given by His opponents in verse 36. He's called there at the end of the verse, the Christ of God. That's who He is. And the Chosen One. Yes! Those are proper names. They speak in mockery, but they actually are identifying Him identifying him as he is. Look at what they call him in verses 37. The, the soldiers, the king of the Jews, and Pilate, the king of the Jews. The soldiers, I think, are speaking in mockery. Pilate is probably humoring him, but, but they're right. He is the king of the Jews. And even the pagan criminal calls him, in verse 39, the Christ or the Messiah. If you are the Messiah, He's speaking in mockery, but He's right. All these names that are given for Jesus are right. And they say all those names with derision, but we know that Jesus is all of those and is described with dozens of other names throughout the Scripture. That He is the Creator, the Sustainer. The One whom they crucified was the second Adam the Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, the Holy One of Israel, the Way, the Truth, the Life, the Vine, the Bread of Life, the Light of the World, the Word who became flesh, the Cornerstone, the Head of the Church, Savior, Deliverer, the Lamb who was slain, the Author and Perfecter of our faith, Redeemer, Friend of Sinners, Advocate, Mediator, Lord, Master, the great I Am, the great Physician, the great Shepherd, the great High Priest. He is the Judge, the Son of God, the Son of Man, the Lord of all, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That is who they crucified. This is the Jesus whom we know and love and the One whom they crucified. And yet... What Luke wants to make abundantly clear is that he was innocent. Let's just go back through the text to just drive this point home. Go back to chapter 4 from last week. I'm sorry, chapter 23, verse 4. Chapter 23, verse 4. Pilate said to the chief priests, I find no guilt in this man. Then verse 14, You brought this man to me because you say he's incited rebellion, but I have found no guilt in this man. Verse 15, No, nor has Herod found guilt in this man. For he sent him back to us, and behold, nothing deserving death has been done by him. Verse 22, And he said to them the third time, that is the crowd in the Sanhedrin, Why should I crucify him? What evil has he done? I found in him no guilt demanding death. Therefore, I'll punish him and release him. And then verse 41. The second criminal says at the end of the verse, but this man has done nothing wrong. And then the centurion in verse 47. Certainly this man was innocent. Jesus was an innocent sacrifice. 
They killed the Lord of glory, the King of kings. We've looked at various responses to the death of Christ. How did the people respond? How did Jesus respond to His own death? How did the Father respond? And so let's conclude by asking, how will you respond? How will you respond to the crucifixion of Christ? His innocence was so clear that the naive reversed the judgment of Him. The naive, I think, is the people. The crowd that's watching, I think they reversed the judgment because at one time they're standing before Pilate and they are convinced by the Sanhedrin that Jesus needs to die. And so they yell out when Pilate says, what should I do with him? They say, crucify, crucify him. But then after they see him die, they turn and head back for home, beating their breasts because they know that what they had seen was not right. I call them the naive because I'm speaking in terms of the book of Proverbs. If you remember, in the book of Proverbs, there's three categories of people who are opposed to God. Three categories of the wicked. There are the naive, the fool, and the scoffer. The naive is someone who's kind of on the fence. They don't want to make a choice. They're a lot like Pilate in many cases. Kind of holding out judgment. Haven't fully determined whether or not Jesus is a fraud. They're easily swayed. If you can't convince them, they'll turn. That's the naive. That's what we all were before we came to Christ. We were naive. But then there's the fool. In the book of Proverbs, the fool is the one who's chosen to reject God. He's confident in his rejection. He doesn't want to accept God's truth. And he, but he's not interested in promoting foolishness, necessarily. But he's not, also not interested in turning away from it. He's, he's just set in his ways. He's not interested in learning about the truth. He's not interested in promoting foolishness. He just lives his life as a fool. The third category that Proverbs describes as the scoffer. This is the worst kind of wicked. It's like the Sanhedrin. They're the ones who not only have rejected who God is and what He has told them, His truth, but they also publicly berate Him. They stand up in defiance against Him and they try to get other people to come to their side. That's the scoffer. And in this story, we have three examples of naive people. People who still are holding out Judgment on what they should think about Jesus. The first is the one that I just mentioned, the crowd. It's these people who had called for the crucifixion of Christ, but then, in verse 35, they stood and watched. They're not sneering at Him. They're not mocking Him. The people are just watching. What's happening here? Why is Jesus asking for forgiveness of these people? And then, verse 48, they all observed what had happened and then they, they went home beating their breasts. Jesus had prayed for the forgiveness of His accusers, of, his, of those who condemned Him. And I think His prayer was answered in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches to the Jews and said, You crucified Him. You put to death. You are Messiah. You know what their response is? Listen to verse 37, Acts 2. When they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter, What shall we do? And Peter said, Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. In verse 41 of Acts 2 says that those who received the word were baptized. I believe that in that crowd to whom Peter is speaking were some of the people 
maybe not, maybe most of the people that were standing there at the cross witnessing what had happened. And after a period of time, they had some time to think about it. Probably 50 days later is when Pentecost would take place. But, but Peter comes by and he preaches. So they're naive at first, but, but actually God answers Jesus' prayer and forgives those, some of those who had crucified Him. The centurion is also another example of a naive person here in our text. Notice how he turned. Verse 47. Remember, he's probably on the side of all the other Roman soldiers, but then in verse 47, when he saw what had happened, same language that's used in verse 48, when they observed what had happened. So when he had saw what had happened, he began praising God, saying certainly this man was innocent. Well, what was it that got him to turn? What had he seen about Jesus that would change his mind? What would bring him over from wickedness to truth? From from falsehood to truth. Well, again, let's go back to the text and see the things that he had seen. Verse 34, Jesus was saying, while He's being led to the cross, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Verse 43, the centurion likely was very close and also heard Jesus say this. He said to the other criminal, verse 43, Truly I say to you, today you will be with Me in paradise. What else did he see? Verse 44, from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, darkness fell over the whole land. What else? Verse 46, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Father, into Your hands I commit My Spirit. And then He saw Jesus give up His life. He breathed His last. So, when He had saw, when he had seen all those things that had happened, He changed His view and said, this man had to be innocent. And then the third person that changed his view of Jesus that was a naive person and turned to a believer was the criminal on the cross. A man who started out by hurling abuses at Jesus along with his, this other criminal ended up trusting in Him. And what we learn from that is that our rejection of Jesus does not have to be permanent. Aren't you thankful that God is slow to anger and overflowing with loving kindness and He loves to forgive when people come to Him in humility. That's the kind of God we serve. And that's the kind of God that this criminal was able to come face to face with on the very day in which He asked for forgiveness. See what a great love the Father will pour upon you to call you the sons of God and such you will be if you come to Him through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank You for forgiving us when we did not know what we were doing. We were counted among those who put You on the cross. We had no idea the, the depth of our sin until someone came to us with the Gospel. And that's why Your grace is over and over highlighted to us. That's why we love to sing about Your grace. That's why we love to learn more about Your Word and see how Your grace is expressed to us in the history of how You deal with people and specifically how You deal with us. It is a wonderful grace of Jesus that we have experienced and we are experiencing and we will experience in the next life when we are finally home. Lord, mold us 
into the person and persons that You want us to be. Shape our minds to, to know Christ and the power of His death and His resurrection and to be shaped by His suffering and be willing to go to suffering with Him, to suffer outside the camp so that after having received reproach by the people of this world who hate You, we will gain the final prize. We will receive the glory that awaits us when we persevere. Lord, help us. I can only do it through Your power. I pray in Jesus' name.